Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I recently saw Ron Howard's documentary Pavarotti in immersive Dolby Atmos at the Dolby Screening Room in Burbank. It was a powerful experience with sound that was remixed from an enormous amount of archival footage that ranged from intimate interviews to being on stage in Rome for the history-making debut of The Three Tenors in 1990. The film is a production from Imagine Entertainment, Whitehorse Pictures, Universal Music Group's Polygram Entertainment, and CBS Films. Tied to the film's release, Universal Music Group's Decca Records released the original soundtrack as well as a collection titled Pavarotti The Greatest Hits. Both include previously unreleased music and duets with the likes of Bono and Elton John. I'm Carolyn Giardina. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. sound for the film was mixed at Abbey Road Studios in London by Chris Jenkins, a veteran re-recording mixer who won Oscars for Out of Africa, The Last of the Mohicans, and most recently, Mad Max Fury Road. Jenkins also serves as executive vice president of Digital Studio at Universal Music Group. And in today's podcast, he joins us to talk about his work on Pavarotti, as well as the business of immersive sound and consumer experience. So welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So I saw Pavarotti in the Dolby screening room in Burbank, and it was such a powerful experience. Overall, what was your creative goal? The story's really not about opera, per se, even though it might look like it from the title of the movie, but it's really how to experience this incredibly broad, rich life that Pavarotti lived. So it's really about soul and heart and joy, and about a guy who got a second lease on life, you know, who almost died of tetanus at a very young age. And when he came out of coma, he realized he'd gotten a whole second lease on life. So what we tried to achieve with it was try to let the viewer go on that journey with Luciano Pavarotti through his life. And it always centers back on simple, simple, simple storytelling, singing. Even though the operas are incredibly complex, the man's life was really distilled down to just pure joy, food, love, and music. And so the goal was to try to dynamically tell that story in the 
best way possible just to get people to know about Pavarotti the man because it really isn't as I said about opera or anything it's just about a simple really richly lived life that we want people to experience the joy of getting to spend two hours with that right and in the film there are such a wide range of performances and that varied from the three tenors on a large stage in Rome to some very intimate environments a lot of it is archival footage in these cases. What did you have to work with and how did you approach that process? There's a lot of archival footage for starters. The opening of the movie in the Amazon is literally a handheld video camera recorded 20 feet from Paparazzi singing in the same hall where Caruso sang. It was an inspired moment of madness on Paparazzi's part saying, we're going to go into the jungle, find this hall where Caruso sang, and I'm going to sing in it and this hall was out of use. So somebody just happened to have a video camera. So this compelling performance of Pavarotti inhabiting Caruso's spirit, singing just to a group of small friends, to what, 15 people, whoever's in the room at that time, it was captured on a video camera. So there was no concern for getting a great audio performance. It was just like, you happen to be there, pull out your camera and record this incredible thing. So we have that and all we wanted to do with that is had the listener go on that trip of being in that concert hall alone with 10 other people listening to Pavarotti sing. So the tool for that is just simplicity and try to create the space that Pavarotti and his few friends were able to hear in that hall. All the different archival footage is used, each one in a different way, depending on what the performance is. Some of them were trying to replicate a particular concert hall where he might have been just with uh, doing a solo piano in his voice. Others, we have full range, multi-tracks for three tenors or for the U2 part of it. And even then, sometimes we find that based upon storytelling, we still want to go maybe to mono or just two-channel stereo, whatever. We try to dynamically change the soundtrack to the message that we're trying to deliver to the audience. So just because we have a large theater sound system, Dolby Atmos or 5.1 or 7.1, whatever the formats are, sometimes we just want to simply revert back to the most direct way to go from his voice to the listener's ear. And sometimes that's mono, because then, by contrast, the next thing that happens might be you go from the Caruso Concert Hall to Italy, and all of a sudden the world opens up in its bright color, and you're in the Italian countryside again, and it feels lush. So we try to scale the soundtrack to go dynamically to each of those places and to take our viewers down the storytelling path in the best way possible. So you can't have a lot of ego as a recording engineer and a storyteller, filmmaker. If it calls for it to be simple, then it needs to be just a piece of bread and a little bit of cheese on a plate. And if you want a feast, you can go to a feast later on in the movie. So we're trying to scale the storytelling and the soundtrack to complement Ron's and Mark Monroe's storytelling. So it's a bit of a juggling act for this, for a music documentary, because it's not always about what sounds best, unlike big action movies or other types of films where the expectation of the listener is that it would be super high tech, full range all the time. This movie's not about that. It's really just about how do you get back to the heart of Luciano Pavarotti. And again, the quest is to get the most direct performance from his beautiful voice to the listener in the movie theater. We mixed it at Capitol Studios in Hollywood to start. We did all of our prep work here, and then we went to Abbey Road to the mix stage at Abbey Road. And you have an Atmos mix, you have a 5.1 mix. Yes, we have Atmos, 7.1, 5.1, and stereo, because 
in a year, you're going to be on an airplane watching somebody watch this movie on their iPhone. <laughs> and we have to have it sound good on every little format. So much like the Pavarotti story itself, we have to be kind of democratic and salt of the earth and know that this has to sound great in the Dolby Atmos theater at a premiere or in a movie theater, you know, in theatrical release. But then it also has to sound good on your laptop and at home on your TV and then on your ultimately on the iPhone. So we try to cover all the bases with that and just try to make one really great mix that'll scale to all those different purposes because our children are watching this movie they'll see it but they'll watch it on their iphone or their ipad or some device like that so that has to be a good translation from one process to the other you already talked about this one scene that the material we had to work with was shot on a video camera would you describe another performance that maybe had different challenges <laughs> on a, just a heartfelt story the most important dialogue in the movie is nicoletta his wife asking him, you know, how do you want to be remembered? He says, I didn't try to do fancy or, you know, new wave, that's paraphrasing, but new wave operas that I wanted to be known as classical storyteller. Yes. And at the end, she says, and how do you want to be remembered as a man? And we cut away and we go through the whole journey of the movie. And then we cut back at the very end of the movie. And it's him again, thinking about how to answer that question. And the audio is the worst possible. You don't hear his voice. You it's a terrible recording there at the beach. You can hear the waves and you can hear birds. But the most important dialogue, he says, I'd like to be remembered as a great husband and father. And if you don't love me today, maybe you'll love me tomorrow. And you really don't hear the words. We subtitled it because there's so much Italian and the operas, the librettos are presented as subtitles to help keep the storytelling going. Right. But that to me is really... If you're tracking with the movie at that point and you heartbreaks when he says that at the end of the movie, even though you can't hear his voice, you hear Nicoletta's blowing him a kiss after he says it really clearly, but you can't hear Luciano. And that to me means that you're working the balancing act of emotionality and audio in the same way. So some people would have been prideful and said, oh, it's terrible, the scene, because I can't hear Luciano's voice, but you see his eyes, you can see how emotional he is, and you can hear his wife kissing him. So it, that's to me is sort of like the dealing again with another issue that could have been a stumbling block for us right. but it's such a beautiful part of storytelling that you have to just, it was a very moving scene yeah it's beautiful and people around every time i've been in the screening people are teared up at that moment but it's not good audio but it's great storytelling i think a lot of people think of opera as like a very highbrow the best recordings the best concert halls the best musicians and all and this movie doesn't have those trappings around it as much as it has the simplicity and the beauty of the storytelling. So as a filmmaker and as a partner with Ron, I get to take these risks that you have to have your A game every day, every minute, but it's not really about the technology or the trappings of like feature film. Maybe it's about the narrative of the story. So it's, I don't want to overestimate that, but it's a really, it's a great, democratizing factor as far as me being a recording engineer and an artist who gets to create that soundtrack is that you just have to know that you're in service of the story and the story is so beautiful that if you get too wrapped up in opera or high fidelity or the best recordings and if you were to be a snob and say we're not going to use anything that doesn't sound fantastic in that movie there'd be no movie so okay. our job is to find the best way to use all those archival pieces and the the beautiful 
performances that are sometimes just two singers standing on a stage together, all the way up to a full orchestra or three tenors or the, you know, the U2, the Miss Sarajevo section of the movie, right. which is all high tech, and we do have multi-tracks. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that one. The, the U2 was, you know, recorded multi-track. It had the benefit of everything that U2 and Pavarotti together doing a benefit for Sarajevo. Um, so you just have all the tools that you want there. So that sounds lush and it sounds great. But I think we come right out of that into something once again, and maybe it's just Bono talking about his relationship with Luciano. The theme of the movie really is, it doesn't have a second title, but it really would be the voice. You know, it is really, it's the voice of Luciano Pavarotti and it's the human voice as a, the most beautiful instrument of all. As much as there's incredible orchestras and accompanists all through the movie, the real, thing I walk away with is the human voice. And when I was trained, I got really like hard trained as a young mixer by a bunch of really old school storytelling sound mixers. And they always said, you have to make sure the dialogue and the human voice is always heard. And it's the number one thing in the movie because you can have great sound design and great music and great sound effects and all these other things that embellish the story. But without the human voice, you lose track of what the story is. So I was trained, it's almost like rigorously learning Latin before you can learn to speak French or whatever else. You have to learn what the roots of it are. And the human voice is it. So at this point in my career, to come back to a project that's all about the human voice is really resonates with me because it's we have the recording technology to make everything sound great and incredible, but this is about really just servicing all the forms of Luciano Pavarotti's voice as it goes through from a young tenor you know, at 14 years old, all the way through to his last time. To me, the really heartbreaking part of it is the last time he does Tosca, and Placido Domingo is conducting him, yes. and he, the story of Tosca is a failed man on his last efforts, on his deathbed, basically. And it's Pavarotti's last public performance. The orchestra knows it, Placido knows it, and that is heartbreaking to watch for me because you can hear all the emotion and he knows that he can't do it as well. The voice doesn't hold up. But I think it's Bono who says in the movie, you know, about that point, he says, people say he wasn't as good a singer, yes. but it's just, he says, they don't know anything about singing. You know, that that instrument at any point was just this incredibly beautiful, unbelievable instrument. You have to break your heart again and again and again to sing those songs. It really, pisses me off and people miss that because these are well-known songs what can you bring to them the only thing you can bring to them is your entire life a life that's been lived the mistakes you've made the hopes the desires that's all that stuff comes crashing into the performance <laughs> Tell us about the three tenors sequence in Italy. I assume you had the multi-tracks for that? It had multi-tracks for that. It was done like a television recording, but it's, even though it's in this huge amphitheater, the mics are very, very dry. There was no audience you know, tracks, no audience mics placed for whatever reason in the Colosseum there. So it sounded like a television show. When we got the masters on it and listened to it, we thought, it sounds very dead. I don't hear the space. So a lot of things that we do with the movie soundtrack is to try to create for the listener. So just because you have the multi-tracks 
that might be a close mic, very close to Pavarotti. The beauty of those performers is, is three guys on stage singing. They're like three feet apart from each other. There's a full orchestra. There's an audience of 5,000 or 50,000 people that are there. And they still, all through the movie, you see these singers who stand side by side on the stage, maybe, maybe holding hands if it's a soprano that he's with. But they sing to each other, facing the audience, over the orchestra, perfectly balanced, and they project out to an audience without microphones. They're not holding mics in their hands, if you notice. So the art of singing that you see, whether it's with Fontaine or with the three tenors, is the artistry and the level of artistry is amazing. So, and just because we got the three tenors, the individual microphones, and then we had brass strings and woodwinds and all the different sections of the orchestra, it still didn't sound like it existed in that space. So cameras are pulled way back and you can see the stage from 200 feet back. We see this vast amphitheater, but it sounds like a very dry recording. So our job here is to, because we're making a movie, is to make the audience that's sitting in a theater with you feel like they're in the amphitheater in Rome. So to do that, did you have to go in and add crowd sounds or go back and record the tone uh, of an environment? somewhat or? only for applause, when, which we generally have from the multi-track recordings. We'll have okay. the end of the audience, but no sense of the environment. And that's so important to movie soundtracks is getting people to feel like they're really in that environment. So whether it's at the Caruso concert hall with 10 people in the Amazon, or if it's at the amphitheater in Rome, or in wherever the various places are, you have to give people a sense of where they are and position the audience as a listener in that environment. You don't want to be detached, feel like you're sitting in a movie theater watching a flat plane of picture and sound. You want them to be enveloped in being in front of the three tenors in the best seat in the house. So we create the environment and the sound of the concert halls and the sound of the amphitheater for the three tenors was what we created and we did the whole movie and got through and finished it. And part of the reason we wanted to be at Abbey Road was Studio One at Abbey Road is one of the most iconic concert recording halls for orchestras. And we were able to take, on the day before I finished mixing, when Ron Howard spoke to me about two weeks before the mix, he said, remind me why we're going all the way to Abbey Road again to do our movie. Because we work here in the States, we work in New York or California on many projects. And I just said, because our movie deserves the pedigree of being at Capitol Studios and at Abbey Road. And he said, okay, good. But the ulterior motive was that we could get into Studio One, that our mix stage at Abbey Road is right above Studio One. And the day before I finished the mix, and I'd completed mo almost everything, the day before that, it was the London Philharmonic, and the day after that was London Philharmonic, but the stage was set up with nobody on it for a whole day. So we took with Sam O'Kell and some of the brilliant engineers at Abbey Road, we, what we call reamping. we took Paparotti's voice and played it over a beautiful pair of speakers at soft volume out into this gigantic recording space at Abbey Road in Studio One and re-recorded it. And as much as I try to work with plugins and reverbs and all the technology that we have, we did a great job. But as soon as I got it into Studio One and re-recorded the vocals and then re-recorded the orchestra, all of a sudden it sounded like it was in an extraordinary space. So that's the translational process, once again, is how do you make a compelling audio sound field for an audience to make it first believable 
and you want it to be a little bit invisible, meaning you don't want to just make it sound like it didn't put it in a space it didn't belong to, but the stage at Abbey Road has these incredibly random reverb times because it's so huge. So I have videos that we shot of it. Of, it's Luciano Pavarotti's voice alone in Studio One. With We took 16 beautiful mics, hundreds of thousands of dollars of these beautiful old vintage mics, and positioned them all through the room at different heights, and then just let his voice bounce around. And so we quickly re-recorded eight of the numbers put them back into our Pro Tools sessions and went back to the stage and I just forced myself to remix about 40 or 50% of the movie in a day and just said, it sounds so much better. Your task here is to just convert the mixes that I'd done and I loved and Ron had signed off on them and was happy. And I just said, I know we can do this better. And we had a fascinating thing happen is that when we finish our mix, we review each section of it and then the couple of days before we finished, we play back the whole mix and Ron had to be back in New York, so we set up a studio in New York for him. And at the same time, Paul Crowder and the team at Abbey Road. And Paul's the editor. Paul's the picture editor, yeah. We played back the mix in London at four, and Ron played it back at eight in the morning in New York, so we played it at the same time. And in the middle of our mix, there's a gentleman named Lester Smith, who's the vintage guy at Abbey Road. And he's seen it all. He knows every orchestra and every composer and every piece of gear. He knows the Beatles mics. He has all that equipment. So he snuck into our screening, and I didn't know it. And when I turned the lights up at the end of the screening, I turned around, and there's Lester sitting there. And I'm like, uh-oh, because he's the authority, really, on anything that's like this. And I fully expected that Lester Smith would have been like, you know, you guys should not be messing with this music. <laughs> if, if anybody had the credibility to just say, please, it's a misstep or, you know, it's not right to take these performances and interpret them for cinema sound. But quite the contrary, Lester was crying. He was sitting on a couch in the back of the room next to Paul Crowder, the picture editor, and Lester was in tears. And he couldn't speak for about a minute. And he took out his handkerchief and wiped off his eyes and he just said, it's so beautiful, I'm, my heart's broken, can I bring my wife tomorrow? <laughs> and I just thought. Oh, wow. So I called Ron Howard in New York and I said, we played back, what are your notes? And he said, was anybody there? And I said, yeah, Lester Smith was here. And he cried and I said, I don't need any more mixed notes from anybody because that was the point of the movie was if you can make somebody cry because of the emotionality of it and you tell the story in the best way possible through sound, then you've accomplished your goal. So archival footage, multi-tracks, all those things, the sum of it all, and the sum of our work was the emotional resonance of someone like Lester Smith being really moved. Pavarotti has had such a long and amazing career. I'm sure there was a lot of material that you had that you weren't able to use. Were there some painful cuts that had to be made as far as selecting which performances to use, or were they already selected when the project came to you? There were pieces that were in early on that didn't make the cut, but we didn't leave anything behind, sadly. We might have shortened, but what we were forced to do then was to use 
instead of having a composer come and score, which there was, Nigel Sinclair, who's our producer, and Paul Crowder, the picture editor, worked with a group called Matter Music, and they did the underscore. So there's probably, I don't know how many there are, maybe five or seven short pieces that are just bridge. But we made the choice, if we couldn't stay on camera because of the edit, we wanted to move away from a performance, we could still stay with it as underscore. So there's a lot of opera. It's 96 pieces, I think, total in an hour and 50 minutes. So 96 cues, starts and stops of music, which is a huge amount. But we use them as underscore. So we didn't have to go to a, a composer. We found that we were very successful in using the actual arias themselves. The music, when we'd cut away from a performance, if it wasn't singers, you notice we'll continue on with Verdi or Puccini or whatever it is, as the underscore. So it has a very authentic quality to it in the way that underscore is used by using the actual source music as underscore throughout. Let's talk about you a little bit. Additionally, you are the executive vice president of Digital Studio at Universal Music Group. Tell us about that role. What does that entail? My relationship with UMG as a consultant started with the request from Giles Martin, who is in charge of all music for the Beatles catalog. So Giles had been remastering Sgt. Pepper for its 50th anniversary, and we worked together on the Beatles documentary the year before. So Giles and I worked closely on that one. We became great friends, and he called me up and said, would you be interested in doing an Atmos mix of Sgt. Pepper's? Come to Abbey Road for three weeks. And I was just like, okay, where do I write the check? (laughs) So it was like the best ask of my life. So we went to Abbey Road, and we spent three weeks, and Sam O'Kell and Giles, and I worked with them, and we created a beautiful, immersive mix of Sgt. Pepper. We did more tests with this. And over time, I did doing more and more work doing immersive audio mixes for Giles and myself, but it was for UMG. So developed a relationship with them, and Michael Fry and his team asked me if I would come on and work with UMG to help bring the filmmaking sensibility to a company that's extremely deeply rooted in musical storytelling. So whether it's writing music, composing, arranging, recording, distribution, supply chain, getting it in front of listeners, UMG is extremely accomplished at every level. But so much of content now has picture attached to it. So my goal is to try to help grow the capabilities for the labels and the artists that are around UMG to have more filmmaking capabilities, whether that just means more screening rooms, more film mixes. My job is to help bring relationships to the artists and the labels and the facilities as well, all through UMG, to help move us forward into being able to tell compelling stories. Because young listeners certainly consume content. That's a terrible way to say it, but they get their music attached to picture, whether that's on a iPhone or a screen or a computer or watching something like a Netflix or an Amazon on TV. People don't think of it as picture or sound anymore. They just think of it as content or a song. But all the brilliant young artists that I work with, recording engineers and composers, all they're not siloed in their capabilities. So traditionally, in both in music and in movies, people were trained to do your recording engineer, or you were a arranger, or a composer, or you were a cameraman. But you could be a DP, but you weren't do sound. But all the young geniuses, people that I work with now, they know how to do it all. 
Robbie Stambler, who was with J.J. Abrams at Bad Robot, did sound design for us on this movie. And Robbie knows how to do visual effects. He knows how to do sound design. He's a composer. He goes location scouting. He does all this because J.J. and his team don't break people down into categories of you're a sound man or you're a picture guy or you're a picture editor. They're expected to be able to do everything. So part of my responsibility is to help bring those skills and those relationships to all the people who are working at UMG to try to create a better storytelling, a more compelling set of skills for storytelling with picture and sound married together. Now we're seeing more Atmos and motion pictures and now we're starting to see it in music. What will it take to bring some of these more advanced ways of listening to music to consumers and not confuse them, but introduce it to them in a way that they can enjoy them? It's a really good question. It's a seemingly easy task, but it's quite complex. It's been successful in movies. I started, I think I did the first Atmos mixes I did in 2012, 2011. So I've done them for seven or eight years. I've done, I don't know how many, but it was always considered kind of a high-end format for action films and for for differentiating the marketplace a little bit with movies, right? So it had to be kind of an elitist format for movies, meaning if you paid extra and you watched the best theater, you could see it in Dolby Atmos. And it was a great, compelling experience. With Atmos Music, our goal is to help democratize it a bit more, which means more mixers. So not every sound mixer could mix in Dolby Atmos. It was considered like a real high-end feature mixing format. And Dolby, through its efforts, and then through the filmmakers' efforts, it got down there. So one of my brothers does a very popular Netflix TV show, and they've been doing that for three years now in Dolby Atmos. So you can get it on TV, you can get it in a movie theater, but we love the idea. When we finished with Sgt. Pepper, we did a risky thing, was we took Giles Martin, took a group in London, and I did a group here in Hollywood, and we put them into a big movie theater and turned off the lights, and we had 70 people who really didn't know each other sat down in a room, and we turned the lights off, and we played Sgt. Pepper, and we thought people could have gotten up and said, not my cup of tea, sitting in a movie theater listening to music. We did three screenings here in Hollywood, and Giles did three in London, and everybody was like, couldn't believe it. They had a communal experience. They loved being with a group of people, sharing, and people say, you're gonna play the whole album, and the whole album is 37 minutes, so it's not like you're gonna be sitting for two and a half hours through struggling to keep up with it. Sergeant Pepper was a great way for us to wake up to the fact that audiences really were yearning to have this immersive experience. And we took that, and we've started over the last two years, starting doing more and more mixes. We haven't had an outlet for them yet. So we think that this year there's gonna be technology coming out on the marketplace, whether that's smart speakers or sound bars or theaters, but we're trying to make the Atmos Music Project stand alone and not be dependent on people going into movie theaters to do it, which would mean that logically we'd have to have, there would have to be hardware and software partners out there who felt the same way that it was compelling. Now, where did you grow up and how did you get into the business? I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. I was born in New York, but I had a big family, so we lived in the suburbs. And amazingly enough, Greenwich had a huge music scene, and it was just kind of expected. All my friends played music, and it wasn't sort of a 
geeky thing to do. It was just it was a normal thing. So Friday night or Saturday night, every weekend you'd go play somewhere, you'd jam in someone's garage or play a school or play a bar, whatever it was. But it was it was a social thing. And a lot of great players came out of that town from that era from the late seventies. And I wanted to be a studio musician, so I got introduced to a small studio here in California, in Hollywood, and they offered me a position as a gopher, unpaid, because it was a union studio. So I came out here, and I went to that studio, and I looked at it, and I said, I had no idea what they were doing, because we'd built recording studios as kids. We played music and recorded music, and it wasn't what they were doing there, so I was did kind of a head scratch. but. It was a re-recording studio, it was Todd A.O., which had 35 employees, and it was the only independent sound company. All the other film soundtrack companies were on the studio lots themselves, so Warner Brothers, Sony, MGM, they all had sound departments, and Todd A.O. had its own private company. And the people who lived in that building were Steven Spielberg and Hal Ashby and Barbara Streisand and William Friedkin, and they loved it because they were away from the studio executives. They couldn't come there. They'd park around the back. It was private. We had three big studios, and we had this incredible clientele who were every year would come back, or their offices would be there. And when I started there, rock and roll was starting to become really popular in movies. But the engineers, it sounds crude, but their yardstick for what great music was for a movie was The Sound of Music or South Pacific or West Side Story, which were amazing in their times. But the new era came where rock and roll was starting to find its way into music in films. And so I worked my way up. I had, was mentored by a couple of incredible people. And they said to me, we're going to make you a mixer. And I was a mixer at 26 years old. And most mixers, you didn't become a mixer generally until you were 50. It was traditional. You would you know, work your way through different apprenticeships and all this stuff. And they made me a mixer very, very young. And so. Frank Zappa, Grateful Dead, Steely Dan, all these different bands came in. Um, the song remains the same for Led Zeppelin. They all came to Tadeo, and they looked at me as a young kid and said, well, what do you do here? And I said, I'm a sound mixer. And they would go to the, they went to the scheduling office and said, we want to work with Chris, because I love their music. So I got struck by lightning at a very, like an incredibly pivotal moment in my life, and also in film soundtrack life, where there was nobody who really wanted to do the rock and roll stuff. It sounds incredible today, but it was really true. It was the other guys were like, eh, we're doing Steven Spielberg or whatever it is. You know, you do the Grateful Dead movie or you do the Led Zeppelin, you know, or assist on it at least. And I had this period of about three years where I was the only young person in Hollywood who really loved making those soundtracks and the artists loved it. And instead of being a session, I came out here to be a session guitar player misguidedly. <laughs> I'm a musician by training, and I got saved. So instead of just doing a chart for one Steely Dan song, playing a guitar part that may or may not get used for two hours, I spent two months with the members of Steely Dan and their engineers and producers doing soundtracks for movies that they worked on. So I developed a relationship with the artists very early on and just developed a shorthand and you know, getting their soundtracks or songs into movies in the best way possible, because I cared and I loved the music. So, I was just, like I said, struck by lightning. It's probably not even strong enough. I just hit the timing right, and I had people that supported me and mentored me. And then the musicians came along and said, tell us who you are again. And I just guided them. So same way with that I get to work with Ron Howard today. Ron trusts me to do the sound for his movies. You know, we have a great shorthand. He doesn't obsess over things. He leaves it to us to like get all the details. Then he can do the broad storytelling. And that started many years ago with 
the Grateful Dead actually were had done a movie. That was the first project you did together? First project we did together, yeah. And then a few years later, a lot of the engineers recording, people that I work with here at Capitol today, they started saying, so you work five days a week, 50 weeks out of the year doing music for films? And I'd say, yeah, it's just like, it's incredible, right? And you get paid well to do it. So it was an incredible set of circumstances. So the truth is you have, you're as good as your last day in the business anyway, whether it was in 1980 or in 2019, you, you have to be able to do it every day and earn the respect of the filmmakers and actually deliver. So to me, it was an early lesson about if people put their trust in you as an artist to go on their journey with them to make a movie, then you have to be able to deliver. And if you don't love it, you should just get out of the way. And that's been my mantra always is that I still love it. I still get to do it. And I get Pavarotti to me is like a really big underscore in the conversation about what my career has been because it's all those components coming together. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.